Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hello, everyone. You hitting the bottle? Just got to get this up front. Are you uh, sipping I... on the uh, <laughs> big gulp over there with a couple shots in it or anything? No, no. And I and I like like our friend here. I, I would be honest and tell you if I was or if I if I couldn't apologize for it. But no, I am not. I'm sipping on my unsweet tea with extra ice. Uh, I'm, I'm straight up, you know, legal for the podcast. Well, I thought of you the whole movie long as I was watching it because it's called Thirst Master in this film but it is basically a big gulp from sonic yeah. and i was yeah. like or from 7-eleven i guess is big yeah gulp. big gulps yeah. 7-eleven and i was like this is patrick patrick with his big gulp or his iced tea from sonic it's just <laughs> unlike unmarked, sutter patrick is probably un, yeah. not spiking it with bourbon yeah. or whiskey or whatever his flavor but, of yeah today. funny you mentioned that we went to a company uh picnic this last weekend and it was a byob <laughs> and i had my my giant cup here with yeah. tea in it and you know, not no more than three people ask me, you know, what's in that? And I'm like, it's tea. Shut up. Okay. I don't need to have spirited beverages to have a spirited time. So <laughs> I don't the mind world, the occasional beer the world or we whatever, live in. but, but <laughs> I'm driving and I don't need that right now. <laughs> this week, we are taking a brief break from new releases to chat about what is, in my opinion, at least one of A24's most underappreciated films and one of the best coming of age stories ever. Yes, I said it. We'll find out shortly whether Patrick agrees or not and have a discussion about why we feel the way we do. So here's your spoiler warning. If you haven't seen Spectacular Now yet, it is currently streaming on HBO Max and only runs about 90 minutes. So it's pretty quick. Go watch it. Go watch it again if you haven't seen it in a while and then come back and give this conversation a listen. Well, as I said, I have always loved this movie, Patrick, from the very first time that I saw it. I had some slight issues with it in the beginning, which we'll talk about, I think, uh, as we get into this here a little bit later. But for the most part, it just really connected with me. And I think that the main reason that it works so well for me is not because it is some unique story for a coming of age. It's not doing something really interesting or new with that genre and it's definitely not flashy in any way but there is something so utterly natural about the way that it depicts its characters and i think it just feels very real and very lived in and that is something that really elevates coming of age stories for me and i wanted to kind of kick us off with a couple quotes that i thought symbolized kind of my feelings pretty well, both from Roger Ebert and Roper, who both gave the movie four of four stars as well. So I feel like I'm in good company there. Roger Ebert wrote, here's a lovely film about two high school seniors who look, speak, and feel like real 18-year-old middle American human beings. Do you have any idea how rare that is? They aren't crippled by irony. They aren't speeded up into cartoons. Their sex lives aren't insulted by scenes that treat them cheaply. 
what an affecting film this is. It respects its characters and doesn't use them for its own shabby purposes. How deeply we care about them. Miles Teller and Shailene Woodley are so there. Being young is a solemn business when you really care about someone. Teller has a touch of John Cusack in his Say Anything period. Woodley is beautiful in a very real person sort of way. I found that funny. I was like, that sounds like, I think he's basically saying she's kind of like a girl next door type and not with sex appeal. Studying him with concern and then that warm smile. We've gone through the senior year with these two. We have known them. We have been them. And Roper added, The spectacular now will bring you back to that time in your life when you were trying to soak in every moment because everyone told you there's nothing better than your last year in high school. Now, you and I are huge fans of coming-of-age stories in general. We both tend to really like them at all times. It's it's rare that we don't. Um, we really resonate with the idea of being taken back and having that nostalgic memory kind of flow through us about our own experiences, even if they're not the exact same as we see on the screen. And one of the things that I thought this movie does differently that Roger Ebert pointed out and is something I really like, and he specifically said, he said, there's no irony in the speech. So I personally really love John Green novels. He writes young adult fiction and his characters speak in a way that is completely unrealistic. They all have read the entire dictionary, Shailene Woodley in included. I mean, one of his movies, The Fault in Our Stars, an adaptation of his book, is in our trophy room, so it's not like I don't enjoy that, but I really liked that this was a refreshing change of pace from that, and I think it works because of the tone that this movie takes. It just, it just feels so completely as if it was just any high school senior experience right next door to me. And so anyway, that's kind of a, a short opening of, of what I really connect with just as an overall picture uh, for this one. But how did it work for you? I, I'm, kind of, I'm rambling because I'm kind of nervous and I, I don't want you to be like, well, I hated it. But I guess if you did, you did. And no, I didn't. I thought it was really, really good. And there were a lot of reasons that, that I agree with you. I agree with Roger Ebert and Roper. I think that the plainness of it, the naturalness of it, the way that it feels like we're just watching and experiencing a third person narrative of the life of, of Sutter and eventually Amy and others as well. It's nice because it doesn't have to do anything more than it's trying to do. And it feels a little bit biographical, which makes it feel more honest. It doesn't feel like it's trying to tell the story of what it means to graduate or the story of what it means to make the prom king or queen or what it means to accomplish this thing or go to college, per se. I mean, college is part of this narrative, but it's not something that's at the forefront, even though Sutter really sort of prefaces and epilogues the movie with an essay that... I believe is meant to get him into college. It's an, it's an admissions essay. It is. But when I look at this movie, I thought the same things. I was like, this is like a new generation's say anything in that it feels kind of weird. Krisha started watching this with me and she was like, so what's this about? And I was like, I don't really know because I didn't <laughs> want to watch the trailer. I didn't, it's not really about anything. I said, that, exactly. It's a, exactly. It's a, and it's not like Seinfeld, a show about nothing, but it's about a guy who is, living now 
and is having a hard time thinking about the fact that tomorrow is coming and that next week and next month and next year are coming and that other people around him either have moved on or are beginning to move on or want to move on. And it's difficult. That's kind of what I took away after I watched this. It doesn't resolve in a way that I felt like was, ah, the nice bow. Like the ending was great. The ending was so sort of both hopeful and hopeless because the expressions on their faces at the end was just like, yep, it, it needed to do that. No words, just an expression and leave it open-ended. I also didn't realize this is based on a book and that the book's ending is far less hopeful. <laughs> it's oh, very, is it? In, yeah. Enlighten me. I did not yeah. know that. In the book, Sutter breaks it off with Amy by lying to her and saying, yep, I got to finish summer school and I'll meet you in Philadelphia. He ends up deleting her number, deleting her email. And then the last scene of the book is him walking out of a bar, having a cut hand from a broken bottle and he's just drunk. So it's very much like, yep, I'm not moving on. He just never Um, gets out of the cycle. Wow. No, he doesn't. And I think that this is really nice because it doesn't leave us feeling like everything is going to work out. It does leave us feeling like something could work out, not just for him and her, but for the life that he is trying to break that cycle with. The other thing that I found really interesting as we're covering this comes at a time when I, at the request or at the recommendation of uh, my other co-host, Adam, from an original series, we uh, were talking a lot about um, a director named Greg Matola, who did the pilot episode of The Newsroom we're currently recording. He also did um, Adventureland with uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart, Great which movie. is very, very, and very underrated um, in terms of what it does because it's it was built sort of as a raunch comedy and it leans more into like a, a way way back where it's just the summer of this person who wants to he ascribes to do something more and yet he's pulled back and ends up sort of revectoring based off of his experiences working at this theme park and i like stories like that i like that it can be plain it doesn't have to have any other objective other than to let us see the growth of someone who's just trying to move into that new stage of their life, whether it's going from high school to post high school, I don't want to say college, because it's not necessarily the end goal of a character, or moving from adolescence to teen, it's the coming of age story. Also, as a bonus, this is a movie that takes place in high school that we're covering. So that's always going to be one that I like. And it's just one of those that's very unassuming uh, from the from the soundtrack to the dialogue. Like you mentioned, I'm a big fan of Aaron Sorkin, just like you. I also like Gilmore Girls, but it intimidates me because the dialogue feels so unrealistic between the main characters because I feel like they're unapproachable. Dawson's Creek is another one of those series that I can definitely enjoy watching, but also know that nobody in high school talks like this nobody does so it's why we found them so attractive because we wanted wanted to to be them because we thought oh we (laughs) should we should be smarter than who we are we shouldn't use the slang and yet then we get dialogue in something like the spectacular now that says no it's absolutely okay to talk over each other and to make jokes there's a scene that i absolutely adore where Amy is talking to Sutter and she's basically making these plans about going to Philadelphia and he keeps interjecting with these like little one-liners. And I'm like, that's me. I would do that because he is the levity of the situation. He doesn't want to take life seriously. That's a character trait of mine where I tend to probably lean too far into diffusing a room with humor and I'd lose that empathetic side. And it's very real. 
But it is emphasized through this dialogue where she's trying to talk to him and he keeps kind of interjecting. She's not getting pissed off. She's just like getting irritated. And finally, she says, listen, listen, let me finish. And they go through that whole little spiel. And then we know that he doesn't want to go or he's afraid of that. But it pushes the story forward. But all those elements really brought this movie together in a way that it was different, but it was the same. And so there's familiarity to it. And I think it can live successfully next to stories like The Way Way Back or Adventureland because it hits those same beats, but it does it in a different kind of way. Yeah, I'm well, I'm really glad that you feel the same way that I did about it. And I, I wasn't totally surprised. I mean, I know your taste. And it, it's not nearly as ironic in its script as something like Lady Bird, but I find them very similar in the way that they approach comedy because they find comedy in just the everyday mundanity of situations and interactions with each other. You know, it's just a little, it's, it's funny. It's plenty funny throughout the movie, but it's just those little comedic lines. It's not necessarily comedic circumstances. So we don't have these big hilarious scenes, but we have his friend walk up to him after finally getting, to go out with this other girl and he's like, who knew dinner in a movie would cost 30 bucks. And so there's like pretty much everybody who's ever been on a date. And I'm laughing out loud. Like that's my kind of comedy, right? I'm like, <laughs> he's not wrong. <laughs> like, uh, exactly. Duh. Like very sarcastic comedy. It, and it's very subtle comedy too. Uh, there's another, when he's with Amy at the party and unfortunately is trying to get her to drink at one point, And, he hands her a beer and she's like, no. And he says, oh, just hold it. It gives off the illusion that you're having fun. And it, it's kind of like a wink and a nod. And it's kind of funny, but it's also just so real and so honest. And that is exactly what most people's high school party experience was like. Most people didn't have the can't hardly wait party every other weekend in high school. You know what I mean? Like those are fun and it's great to think about those, but they're not usually quite that big of a blowout. <laughs> they are, it's very much condensed um, and simpler uh, and like it was in this movie. And I, and I thought it handled that well. So you, you talked about it. His whole thing Sutter's is live in the moment and don't worry about the future. And it sort of changes his perspective. That is with the last line of his college essay, he ends it by saying, it's fine to live in the now, but the best thing about now is that there's another one tomorrow. I'm going to start making them count. Now, I find that inspiring. I think every time I watch this and those last lines are spoken and then the credits roll and it's one of my all-time favorite songs uh, ever. I just absolutely adore the song that plays. It's by uh, Phosphorescent. And... I find that line interesting because it's almost one of those lines. This is it's almost like a John Green line, to be honest, because it sounds to me so smart at first glance. Like, oh, yeah, it's fine to live in the now, but you're going to have another one tomorrow. That's so witty. And I was like, and then I thought about it a little bit longer. And I was like, are we really saying anything here? <laughs> like, if we're living in the now and we have another now tomorrow then are we really living in the now? Because we're still thinking about tomorrow and how there's another now tomorrow. And, and it can kind of get into your head a little bit. 
I just wondered, you know, did you note what he said at the end there when you were watching it at all? Do you agree with his new perspective or do you think that there's value in his original feelings of really just being caught up in the spectacular now as as he is for most of the movie? Well, I think his sentiment has changed, but I think I think his sentiment has stayed the same in that he values what's happening in the moment. But I think he recognizes that there will be another opportunity and I can't be afraid of the fact that tomorrow is coming. So I think when we see him, especially when he's interacting um, with um, was, uh, Cassidy, his his super heroic girlfriend, and I say that sort of tongue in cheek because of what we know about Brie Larson. I think that they have this relationship that is so on fire in the moment, as he describes, but they're nothing when they're not together. So when I look at when I look at that quote, what I what I see in him is a sentiment that is sort of related to the idea in the map of tiny perfect things, capturing the things that are good in those moments, but knowing that there's fleet fleetingness that's happening, that there's a carpe diem that lives in that. But there's hope in knowing that the next day, the next after a sleep, we can experience whatever's happening in that moment. That's kind of how I felt uh, when I was what I was taking away from that is that he wasn't afraid of the next day because of the fact that he was trying to suck the marrow out of life <laughs> in this particular day. He embraced the fact that tomorrow could be even better or it could be worse. But it's the day itself that needs to be experienced, not the day that needs to be thought of the next day. It's very much, you know, an echo of scripture, not worrying about tomorrow, let tomorrow take care of itself. Yesterday is gone. So there's a variation on that. I don't think it was intended to be that way, but I kind of picked up on that, that when we're in the moment, when we're fully present in the things that we're doing, there's a sense of selflessness and selfishness that sort of get intertwined. The the prior to, the before version of him was suck out all the marrow, take advantage of everything drink your emotions away and take everybody along with you that is willing. Now I think it's him looking extrovertedly at the world and with someone like Amy, his mom, his sister, the the end of the movie, if it were just her that we focused on, the point would have been lost. But the fact that as he's talking about this before he leads to that line, we see glimpses of his mom, his sister, his best friend, and then finally Amy, what I think that line means is that his connection with those people needs to be lived out fully each day and not for himself necessarily, but for both. It needs to be very mutual. Like, how can I give to them as much as they're giving to me? Which is why you see he and his sister and his mom at his mom's house eating a meal. <laughs> I wish I'd seen kind of more of that with his best friend. Maybe there's reconciliation there. Um, there's also the fact that not every day is going to bring a day of like roses and sunshine because obviously his relationship with Cassidy is not fixed. Like she's gone to California and he's not doing that. He's not going to visit her. Like that didn't get resolved. So when I, when I hear that quote, I think of it as hopeful. I think of it as realistic more than anything else. Yeah, I agree. And I, Wish I had to choose between Brie Larson and Shailene Woodley. I mean, you know what? <laughs> if I have to go to Philly or California, I flip a coin. I'm happy. Either way, I'm good. <laughs> I, Miles Teller has really, he's hes had a good run. I just got to say, uh, the cast is stacked. I mean, 
those three, and we'll talk about some of the supporting cast, but you, you talked about his sister, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, a favorite of ours, is in this as well. I mean, it just feels like a who's who of phenomenal actors. Bob Odenkirk is in here just, you know, for a cup of coffee as his boss and one really good scene where he's like, listen, I know what you're doing. I know that you come in here drunk, even though we haven't talked about it. That's also one of my favorite moments in the movie. And you were talking about this. This is kind of what you were alluding to there at the opening uh, intro paragraph or intro of the show where you were saying, you know, Sutter is honest and he tells him straight up. He's like, I can't promise you that. And I really respected that about this character. It did not feel like a normal, you know, kind of overly written, perfect character. Like it felt raw and like someone would just blurt out and be like, nah, I can't do that. Um, but we have him. You have Caitlin Deaver is her best friend, Shailene Woodley's best friend, Amy's best friend. And she's only in it for like a couple of minutes because it's the very, very beginning of her career. And so that was kind of cool. And Jennifer Jason Lee is his mom. Um, so, yeah, anyway, it's a great cast. I, I'll tell you the one thing that kind of concerned me about the first time that held me back slightly was the fact that, you know, from the very first scene, he's an alcoholic. And I remember when I first watched this a decade ago thinking, I don't know if this is really realistic. Like, you know, this is a high school kid really able to just drink all day, every day like this. And, and would he really be this much into alcohol? And over the years, I've really kind of come to the point where I, I think that it, it occurs more than we want to admit. And I don't know that, you know, I, I'm sure it's a little exaggerated. Because it's a story and it's fiction and that's the, the you're trying to kind of have dramatic moments and characters. But the, the way that they depict it is not nearly as in your face as some films show teenage alcoholism. Because what they show it as is how it has become something that Sutter was groomed into by his dad he tells amy hey i had my first sip when i was sick and it's a very casual conversation too and it's not one of those things where he's reflecting on it and having this big moment in time he's just telling her a story and he's like oh yeah you know what do you mean you've never had alcohol my dad started me when i was six and as an audience and as an adult you kind of clue in i think and you go oh oh like no wonder and then as you start to learn about his life and all of the things that he is struggling with, right? His feelings of worthiness, his fear of failure, and all of these things are kind of coming from this whole like absence of a father in his life and him clinging to the aspects of his father that he knows. So I, I was questioning initially the way the character was created, but ultimately I came to really think it works and for me, it's someone who I wanted to see be better, but I also have a little bit of a doubt in whether or not I think he should be with Amy because of the way that he sort of, some might call, steals her innocence. Did you have a problem with that at all? Did you like Sutter did you root for their love story 
or did you feel like he, you know, did you feel like he got redeemed in the end? Well, I felt this time like you felt 10 years ago where the, the alcohol was something that was sort of casually at the forefront. And I was uncomfortable with it in the sense that it's not what I was used to. But then I had to think about the fact that I know Tim Riggins from Friday Night Lights, and I know that this is something that does happen. It's not, I'm not naive to think that somebody who is a a walking alcoholic or a casual alcoholic or whatever the whatever the term is can exist. And so when you see him with her, there is a sense that like, well, she could do better, or why is he why is he taking that from her? But there were a couple of scenes where I felt like she still knew who she was. She still had control of her own life. The big crux for her was that she couldn't tell off her mom about wanting to leave and go do her own thing. But there's this wonderful scene where he has ghosted her for about a week after. <laughs> that was the big reveal. Like, oh, my gosh, he invited her to prom. And I thought that was going to be the thing. I thought that that's going to be the scene at the end of the movie where it's going to be like, she's all of that. And he's like, I'm going to be, yep. I'm going to show that I can be cool with this nerdy girl. And I love that it didn't happen that way. I love that that wasn't the point. That that was like, what, like halfway through the movie? And when you watch him with her, um, so let me let me back up. So he, he goes there for a week and then he invites her to that dinner party. And when she reveals that her dad killed himself through pills and how she maintains the sense of, man, that was dark. But let me bring it back up. And she says, I believe marriage can last. This is what I want. I want to be this. I, I'm, I picture myself having a ranch and being, you know, working for NASA. And I envision my husband. I love what she said. I envision my husband doing something completely different. So that we have some things in common, but we're always bringing something new to the table. Now, whether she was thinking about Sutter or not, that tells me that she's not under his spell. Did he get her to stop drink, start drinking? Yes. In fact, um, I think it was I think it was um, Cassidy at the dance who said, "So, have you made her a lush yet?" And I was like, "Ooh, ooh, yes. That, yeah, that's what I was feeling." That's a flaw. That's a character flaw. And it shows that he does have influence over her. But what boyfriend doesn't over a girlfriend or vice versa? It's just a more severe case. What I am glad didn't happen was one that she became a closet alcoholic that couldn't hold her liquor. I mean, yes, she was definitely, you know, hiding it and, you know, being an under the under the counter drinker in that case. But by the end of the movie, that wasn't the focal point. His drinking was a byproduct of his upbringing. And you grow out of that. You learn to control it. You learn to recognize that you might be an alcoholic and you learn to deal. So the movie leaves us with two individuals who haven't, quote, overcome their addiction. I mean, maybe she hasn't. Maybe she still drinks heavily. But the movie doesn't tell us that that's the point. It's a byproduct of something else. And so in terms of innocence, I don't think I necessarily agree with him taking her innocence because I don't know what her innocence was. I mean, the fact is, I don't know if they were drunk when they dropped into that sex scene where she was like, okay. Well, yeah, she'd never had a boyfriend before. So I think she was exploring just like mm-hmm. any adolescent teenage girl would. Her looks didn't have to matter at that point. And I don't think he ever coerced her into taking off her clothes or to having sex with him. Never. That's where I think that scene and the dinner scene solidified the fact that she was making her own decisions. 
and that the drinking didn't change her mind. It's not like she didn't see him prior to her drinking. I mean, he introduced himself before she started taking, you know, his addiction with her and she was she was fawning over him. She was attracted to him before she took that first drink. So I don't think that was the case. I think she was still her own person, even though she hadn't lived the life that he had up that up to that point. But that wasn't her fault. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, you're right that you're always going to take something from each other when you have a relationship. And it sort of goes to what she was saying about her dreams for the future. Like you're going to have a quality that your significant other doesn't. And it's very likely that many of those things tend to be ones that you pick up, whether it's a hobby or an interest or a food choice, or in this case, a beverage choice. And so it makes sense, but I agree with you. And in fact, the love scene specifically, I think is one of the most intimate and respectful ones I've ever seen shot, especially for this kind of film. Usually when you see teenage high school sex scenes, they're so much less awkward (laughs) than this. They're not, they look more like the kids have watched a bunch of porn and are acting it out or trying to act it out or whatever. And this felt very much natural and, I don't know, I guess reminiscent of what I remember it being like. Anyway, I just think that it was handled with a a very well-intentioned eye and it wasn't all about being sexy And it wasn't about sexualizing Shailene Woodley in that moment or turning her into, you know, the hot person that we're going to going to see her boobs and you're going to have, you know, the guys pausing the the TV. That's not what this was about. And I, I appreciated that so much because it kept this thing moving at the right tone and in a more serious way. And I thought that their relationship and the way that they interacted was again like you said it's very mutual if not honestly dictated by her and i did root for them like i wanted him to snap out of it so that they could be together for most of the movie but as the film progresses and as he ends up going to meet his dad and we see him yelling at her and almost getting in the car at crash and then you have the big like, oh my gosh, moment. Did you think she was dead for like a second? Because I'm assuming. <laughs> yes, I was like. That's the point. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> At the very least, she didn't have an arm. So now he's going to be oh in love gosh. with someone who is almost. <laughs> it's so. Yeah, even even having dick. seen it, it like comes out of nowhere. And you're just like, she just stands out there and it, and it happens so quick. I don't know. It's shot really well because it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't linger so long that you have time to process that she's in the road. And it's just like. Honk, bam. <laughs> and then it's just like, like, what just happened? Oh, my goodness gracious. And so even even without that happening, you know, I, I was getting to a point where it's like, OK, I would love for you guys to be together, but not at the cost of Amy not following her dreams because of. And I love that she was able to stand up for herself and not do that and, and put him aside. To the point where she understood that, like, listen, I love you or I care about you, but you are toxic. And until you can figure this stuff out, I I have to move on. 
And if you want to come, then come. And so I think that's what makes the ending better this way. Yeah. What I love about Amy's character is the fact that she is changing as the movie goes on. She falls in love with Sutter. She has no problem admitting that she does love him. There was a, a factoid in IMDb that I thought was really interesting. When you look at the two sex scenes that are depicted in the movie, there's the one at the very beginning between him and Cassidy, and it's very much like a pornographic type thing. Like, oh yeah, this is this is what you'd see in like Animal House or Fast Times or whatever. And then you see this one, one shot, two and a half minutes. Apparently it was a lot longer, but they had to trim it down. And there was a comment made that symbolically that's kind of representative of his two relationships with Cassidy, short, nothing meaningful, very much entertainment above anything else. With with Amy, it's slow, it's meaningful, it is mutual. It's not one person serving or being a slave to another. They're both in that experience together with the awkwardness and playfulness and everything. And from a director point of view, I would imagine that that was intentional to just show the kind of quality of relationship that he wants. And again, I just want to go back to the fact that I love that his story with him and Amy wasn't the focal point per se. It was another driving force, just like the drinking. But I think what makes it makes her stronger as a character is the fact that she could leave. The fact that she wasn't overtaken by her love for him enough to realize that she had to move forward. I mean, the fact is she made a deal with him. <laughs> she would address her frustrations with her mom in order to get out if he would address his frustrations with his mom about his dad. And she followed through with that. So I think for her, it would have felt completely wrong to not go because she made that giant step by by talking to her mom. And now if she hadn't, it would have really felt like, well, that was fake. That was all just for your bo- for your boyfriend. That was all for a boy to impress him. I love the fact that she left. And I would have been fine if the last scene shot was him just driving. I got the I got the whole kind of goodwill hunting vibe at the end of the movie where he's driving in his car and I'm like, that'd be enough for me. Roll credits. I don't know where he's going. Is he going off to his own college? Is he doing his own life? Is he going after her? That ambiguity would have been even more impactful. Yeah, I think I actually would like that better, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, because his life wasn't about her. She was a signpost for him. She was a directional arrow for him to to get there. But so was his mom. So was his sister. So was so was Cassidy to an extent. And you're right. And I think that's that's it. That's way, way back. That's what we love about coming of age stories, right, is when. It's a moment. It is a that's why they call it slice of life. It's a snapshot in time. It is almost never going to be the defining long lasting relationships in your life. It is impactful moments. It is impactful events and relationships that help change who you are and help you mature and grow in ways that you end up a different person than you were at the beginning of the story. Right, whether it's over one summer at a water park or whether it's over your senior year, as it often is, you are in that transitional period of becoming an adult. And that's what makes these so interesting because we all went through this. And even if you can't relate to an exact character's path, like you and I weren't alcoholics, you and I both had our dads, but we had girlfriends, we had breakups, you know, we had our own problems that in hindsight, 
you know, when you're 44 years old, you look back and you're probably like, that wasn't a problem. That was like, what was wrong with us? But that's the thing is like we all, everybody, everybody that's ever been in high school has an experience that they could like look at this as a cipher for and be and insert themselves and be like, oh yeah, or a piece of this, right? Um, and I think that's what makes these for us just so easy to like take in and watch and just really kind of sit with and enjoy. Uh, so Kyle Chandler, our guy, Kyle Chandler, he plays Sutter's very awful absentee father, alcoholic, dirt bag. His mom has been keeping from him that his dad left them and trying to protect him. First of all, this is brilliant piece of casting. This is right on the heels within a year or two of the end of Friday Night Lights' run where Kyle Chandler is Coach Taylor. And this is about as 180 as you can get from Coach Taylor. And I think that that's so perfect because I hate him. I hate him more, Patrick, than I would hate this character if it was any other actor. I hate him because... He can't be like that because he's Kyle Chandler, you know, and so so not only because he's a he's Sutter's dad, but because he's Kyle Chandler. And I just think I, it really works for me because of that and just gets my blood all boiling. But I can't imagine the burden of like having one of your parents kept from you by the other and not understanding why that is. And so I wanted to ask you how you felt about this. And a, a really kind of a pointed question is, do you think. And as a parent, you're a parent, you're having to think about this, but is it right for parents to protect their children like we see Sutter's mom trying to do by not allowing him to be in contact with his dad and not giving him the full truth that he was abandoned? At a certain age, yes, absolutely. There is an age to keep secrets and there's an age to reveal those secrets. Same thing with having an adoptive child. I mean, at some point, the child is going to know that his mom and dad are not his bio parents. They should. I mean, that's terrible. Do not keep that from your child if you've adopted him. And I don't think any parent would. But at some point, you have to be able to reveal that part of that person's world because curiosity is going to get the best of that person. And it needs to be said. A parent, however bad or however dangerous... I mean, okay, let's let's talk about danger. So there there is a threshold of knowledge about and contact with. If this parent has committed like nefarious crimes that make him a danger to society, if he's a sex offender, if he's, you know, these things, there's an informational here you go. This is who your dad is, but there's a protective thing. I cannot let you see him because of your safety. That's a parental right that you have as the guardian. But I do not believe that you should ever keep for the for the entirety of a kid's life, that a secret. The kid's going to know that he has a parent. He has a mom and a dad. And if one parent is absent and you're given the opportunity to tell him at some point when it's appropriate or her, you need to be able to do that and with the constraints. And if your kid's like, well, I want to go see him. Okay, then we need to talk about that. Let me tell you, here's what you need to know about your dad. And then you put constraints on that. So the short answer is no, I don't think you should keep that at a certain point. I don't think you should keep that locked down forever. And 
I get the protective strategy. I get it because you do not want, when we talk about innocence, you don't, like, I don't want my kid exposed to things that a 13, 14, 15 year old kid's going to be exposed to, but he is already. And we have to have hard conversations. I wish they didn't, we didn't have to, but we do. So if it's in your control as a parent to be able to navigate those conversations and navigate that kind of information to your child, that's your responsibility. But it needs to be revealed at, at some point because otherwise there's resentment, there's mistrust. Like, if you can't tell me about my bio dad, how can I trust you with everything? What else are you lying about? I mean, that's going to happen. And so instead of having resentment for one parent for just leaving you, now you have resentment for both for different reasons. So now you have a completely broken relationship with your parents. So I would love to say that that's the best way to go. That's probably my approach if that ever happened. My, you know, obviously, my wife and I are still together. I'm not a lush uh, living in an apartment <laughs> with a great uh, or not so great beard thing happening. But in, in the case of, of him, keeping that a secret, I think, affected him. There's a, there's a really interesting scene with him and his sister where they're sitting out and he gets the information that she's actually known for a while. I thought he was going to say something to her. Like when she gave him, when she left and came back with the phone number, mm -hmm. I thought there was going to be some serious resentment, some serious anger. There was he, in the acting. There wasn't the acting. Though. Like I well, think that is there. I think that, <laughs> I think it's a mixture of resentment, but I think, I think the shock is like overwhelming the resentment, but I, th oh, I, I agree. felt like you it know, was there. The shock was there for sure. But the fact that he comes back and he leans over and he hugs her tells me, I kind of get what you're doing. I get why this happened. And why you kept this from me, and that reveal of Kyle Chandler as this uh, as this like deadbeat dad, it was very very reminiscent of Trent from the way way back. In a sense that we had experienced Steve Carell as this goofy boss, right, Michael, and now I think it's for the same jerk. reasons they were like, we need to we need to show your range. And I think for both of these actors, they're like, we need to, I need to see something beyond just comedy or beyond just the feel good guy. I was grateful that we got a, uh, let me tell you something in there. You know, at one point he said that I was like, there you go, coach. You're going to give us a motivational speech. No, you're not. You're going to leave this kid to pick up your tab while you go hang out with your girlfriend. Like, and that was the moment I was like, dude. Man, just go hang out with Riggins. I mean, you, you know, you've become this guy. So, <laughs> well, and it's awful too because you, you know, up until that point, Sutter is always the most confident person in the scene in every single frame of this movie. And in that scene, you understand and feel he's lost it. Like he is sitting in that booth, and it's just, I mean, credit to Miles Teller, who I think is a phenomenal actor this shows that he always has been like he sells that complete feeling of he's saying, Oh no, it's fine, dad. Like, it's cool. Like, yeah, we're here, but you can read it all over his body language and his face. He is just devastated inside. Like, how could, how could you do this? Like I came all the way out here. How could you do this? And of course, Amy is like furious. Amy's like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> this is not how you treat your son. Like what, what in the world? And it's, it's such a heartbreaking moment, but I think I'm with you. I, I believe, and I always have believed that unaltered truth and clarity is important above all. And that you deal with the reality. And if the reality hurts and if the reality is hard, so be it that you work your way through that. 
I don't even know if I would agree with withholding information. I think I would at a very young age. I do not think that it should have been withheld from him to up to his senior year. I think that is far too long. And I think that his mom probably knows that. And, and I, I feel for his mom in this movie because like she knows that Sutter has issues because he's he does he doesn't do the things that he tells her he's gonna do, but she knows he's a sweet talker and she cares about him. And she doesn't want to see him hurt, and that's what it always comes down to: is you don't want to tell the truth because you don't want to hurt somebody, right? And I think she got herself into a position where she had held this lie so long, it becomes harder and harder to then admit it because you're dealing with more and more built up resentment, like you talked about. Once you do tell the truth, and so I think. The sooner, the soonest you can possibly do it, you got to do it. And obviously it's going to be different for every situation. But in this case, it's pretty clear that she waited too long. <laughs> and it, he might have had a, a better healing moment earlier. And, and maybe not. I don't know. And, and that's kind of my point is like, it doesn't matter. Maybe it had, maybe it would have been worse. Maybe his freshman year, she tells him, and he has a complete breakdown and it's an awful, awful time. You work through it. So be it. At least it's the truth. I, I will always kind of lean that way. But yeah, it's a it's a pretty heartbreaking uh, moment. And the beauty of it is that he comes out of this, I think, with a bigger appreciation for those people around him that are in, in his life and that want to be in his life. Right. And I think every one of them wants to be influential to him and his turn over the course of the movie and why I feel like some things I, for, for my own personal, like opinion or my own personal preference didn't get resolved, but should have were those relationships that he is now ready to sort of honestly live in uh, and, you know, relationships with his ex-girlfriend, with Cassie, with his best friend Again, we see that with his sister and his mom. And I think that makes sense because it's his senior year. Everybody's going their own ways. And so maybe those, again, those relationships from high school with his best friend, with his girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, they need to be let go. And that's part of the healing is that I can't resolve everything, but that's not the point is to resolve everything. The point is to move forward. And if I can heal in some of those relationships, I absolutely want to. His dad is not going to be one of those relationships that gets healed, potentially. I mean, obviously anything's possible, but we're left, it's interesting, we're left with three relationships, mom, sister, and Amy, and that are reconcilable or are looking to be reconciled. And then we're looking at three relationships that are not, best friend, ex-girlfriend, and dad. And that's what life is. We don't have great relationships with everyone. And that's sad, but it's also kind of appropriate because we're not hanging out and we're not connected to everybody. Like I think about you and me, we've been friends for so many years removed from high school, but there was a gap of like 10 years that we were not talking at all. Is it because I hated you? No, it was because you were living your life. I was living mine. Okay. Maybe it was. I don't know. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> People can't see me making faces, as well. but yes. <laughs> Let me get down on the therapy couch and we'll talk about it. No, but- but there was a gap, and I remember specifically the first time I talked to you after that gap was just after I'd gotten married. So what did I experience? I'd experienced college, I'd experienced young adulthood, and I'd experienced a couple of really 
just risky relationships, relationships that changed me and changed my perspective about life before I met my wife. And now you're catching me at a different point where your life is different. It doesn't mean that you can't resolve every relate. Well, it does. You can't resolve every relationship that you've had that has some kind of brokenness to it. Sometimes your life just doesn't have the capacity to have that kind of redemption for every single relationship. Does it mean that those relationships are tainted and unhealthy? Not necessarily. Sometimes absence, complete absence, permanent absence is a good thing because a person can grow independent of that person. And I think Amy's choice to leave is an example of that. Because again, if all we had seen is Sutter driving off, not knowing where we're going, I could have pictured Amy living her life, going to college, eventually finding that guy who's doing something completely different from her and being okay with it and not feeling like Sutter didn't get what he deserved or what she deserved. They had what they needed and they helped each other and hurt each other at the same time. And that relationship made them different and better in it put them on paths that maybe they won't meet again, but that's not going to be a bad thing. And I think that there's some hope in that and some really interesting perspective that we all experience as people is that our relationships, even if they mess us up, or even if we mess that other person up or, or things get broken, that doesn't mean you can heal even if it's independent of that person. Yeah. Well said. Well said. I, you know, don't have a lot more. I think that the direction in this is awesome. I just, thought that the cinematography the score everything works for me really perfectly uh, throughout this film i think the pacing is just dadgum perfect this also has a use of a trope that i think is a lot of fun in coming of age stories which is there's always a high school teacher that has to give you some sort of nugget of i don't know like wisdom has to kind of be pushing you a little harder than everybody else and while this is maybe a, a smaller example of that than in some films that we've seen, I liked Mr. Astor, Sutter's geometry teacher uh, in this film and the couple of brief scenes we get with him, particularly the first one where he's digging at Sutter about whether or not he did his homework. And there's this great dialogue back and forth between the two of them. And then ultimately he just comes over and sits down at his desk and <laughs> starts asking him questions. And he's like, and that was the homework. <laughs> He's like, this is great. We get to spend time together. I'm so excited. <laughs> and I was just like, this guy is playing a great teacher. Like that kind of energy that he brought to this, even in just his few moments, brief moments, I thought was a highlight. Yeah. I mean, his his performance was good. I think he was appropriately in the movie for the amount of time that the movie was for, again, you know, 90 plus minutes. It's, an, it's a tight hour and a half. Um, he didn't feel like he had a major impact in the way that like Mr. Bruner does in uh, the edge of 17. Like, I think that's probably one of my favorite, like, <laughs> like teachers that inspire. It's such a backwards way of doing it. This felt appropriate. And I'm glad that it's in there because it creates yet another small connection to getting back on the right path. The other thing I want to say is that I can appreciate the fact that Sutter's drinking doesn't become the major focal point. And I think I said that before, but that nobody brings that up. Like, maybe it's the alcohol, man. Maybe you're just drinking too much. The only time it's brought up is with his his boss, played by, as you mentioned, Bob Odenkirk. But even that feels a little bit subtle because in that conversation, he says, I think this is the part of the conversation where if I were your dad, I would give you a lecture about getting on the right path. And I love Sutter's response. He said, and this would be the part that if you were, you wouldn't have to. 
And it's so, it's just honest. And all this stuff is, I think, wrapped up in this sense of honesty. It doesn't have to be apologetic or unapologetic. It's just honest. And it allows us as an audience, as we watch the movie, to sort of make our own decisions about, is Sutter a good guy? Does he deserve this? Does he deserve that? Because what we're doing is we're really asking, do I deserve that? Do I get to have a second chance? Do I look back at my you know, habits, the things that were bad, that were habitually uh, dangerous for other people, and I thought that they were fine, may not have been drinking, maybe it was something else, but then I can, I can do some self-examination as well. And I thought that the whole movie, including the use of his teacher, allowed me to go, yeah, there are people in my life, even if they have a small part to play, it's a part and it made a difference. So yeah, it's good. Good stuff, man. All right, next up, we are back in the theater with our Fast and Furious family. Fast X is coming to town, and we'll have our thoughts. Hopefully, they'll be good. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> fast X, Fast 10. I see fast you're, you're a Fast X guy, huh? I'm a Fast X. You know, uh, Fast it's, 10, your It's kind of like the Apple 10 and the Apple X, isn't that? Apple X, yeah. Everything is, yeah. <laughs> stupid. It I is know. stupid. I'm going to say it right now, and I'm going to say it again in seven days. It is stupid. It's 10. It's 10. <laughs> Why do you use a freaking X if it's 10? It's Roman numerals. <laughs> well, you know, it's fast 1X uh, before that, right? Is it fast IX? Fast I. We'll start calling them fast II, fast II. <laughs> Just get ridiculous <laughs> from there. All right, Aaron. Well, thanks for a fantastic conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.